Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of My First Sketch. I'm Josh Hyam. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or SoundCloud to get it automatically. If you use the Stitcher app, you can find it there as well. It'd be really cool if you rate it five stars and leave a review on whatever platform you choose, like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash myfirstsketch. Follow along on Twitter at myfirstsketch. Head to myfirstsketch.com where I'll post any of the videos that we talk about on today's episode. Any questions, thoughts, recommendations, feel free to email me at josh at myfirstsketch.com and I'll get back to you in a timely fashion. As I record this, the schedule for Philly Sketchfest 2019 is set. Keep your eyes peeled at all the Philly Sketchfest social media as the announcements start rolling out. I'm super excited for this year's festival. 45 amazing acts filling five stages over four nights of live comedy. It's going to be fantastic. And starting after this episode, I'll be highlighting some of the performers that are coming to Philly Sketchfest. So get ready for some great chats with people from all over North America. Another cool thing. My First Sketch is doing a giveaway in the weeks leading up to Philly Sketchfest. If you go to myfirstsketch.com, scroll down the main page, and enter your email address, you'll be entered to win a prize pack of books about sketch comedy. And the winner can decide whether you want the Kindle digital copies or the actual physical paper copy. Brand new copies, not just me cleaning out my bookshelves, because these are all books I would keep. Privacy notice, I'm not a jerk. I won't sell your emails. But since my first sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production, you'll be added to the Philly Sketchfest mailing list as well. And believe me, you won't get a ton of emails, just, just when we have something cool coming. Today's guest is John Marco Cerezi, currently a member of Uncle Function in New York City. His first sketch is called Food Chain of Love. John Marco reads the roles of Hiram and Renato, and I read the roles of Barb and the Waitress, and give any visual information that you would need to know. So let's get to the sketch. Interior Renato's, an Italian sit-down deli, an old New York born and bred married couple, Barb and Hiram, think George's parents from Seinfeld, wait for their food. Hiram, in his best blue suit, looks around impatiently. Where's my pastrami? You look crazy. I'm starving. I meant your suit. What's wrong with my suit? Who wears a suit to a deli? A sit-down deli. Tomato, potato. That is not the phrase. Why are you so cranky? I'll be fine once I get my pastrami. You've eaten pastrami here every night for the past three months. I can't afford it. I'm just saying, it would be nice if you ate in every once in a while. And settle for one of your world-famous stir-fries? My stir-fries are delicious. Your stir-fries taste like neglect. A hot waitress carries out a gigantic pastrami sandwich, which requires two hands. Sorry for the wait, Mr. Rothkrug. Renato said he was making it perfect just for you. Well, you tell Renato that if the cannolis take this long, he's going to get a spanking, winking face. Okay. I'll be right back with yours. The waitress exits. Barb notices Hiram's eyes following her. That's what this is about? Some big boobid waitress? I was looking at the kitchen. You've been paranoid again. We should go, we should go back to Dr. Katz. I don't need therapy. Ever since you found Renato's, we've been at each other's throats. 
The waitress returns with a meek house salad and plops it in front of Barb. Enjoy. She exits. Beat as Hiram takes the salad in. What now? It's disrespectful. What's disrespectful? Your salad. My salad's disrespectful? Going to Renato's and getting a salad is like going to Broadway and seeing Mamma Mia. You were dancing at the end. I was having a seizure. Dr. Rashbaum says I need to watch my cholesterol. This is the good kind. What do you know about nutrition? I know no one can make up their mind. The jury's not out on pastrami. You leave the pastrami out of this. Suddenly, Renato, a sweaty Italian chef with a thick, a thick accent, saunters out holding a serving tray of scrumptious cannolis. Buongiorno, Mr. Rothkrug. Hello, Renato. This is the wife I told you about. Ah, uh, Mrs. Rothkrug, it is, uh, how you say, a great privilege to meet you. I hear your stir fry is it to die for. Oh, really? To die for is in you want to die for it tastes like a medley of genocide and rape. That is it. I may not be Julia and Julia, but I'm your wife and I deserve some goddamn respect. Uh, I'm gonna go. Hiram stops him. No, you should be here for this. Bob, I'm gonna tell it to you straight. For the last 43 years, you've been almost everything a man could ask for. Or look at this pastrami. Caringly cured for weeks. Delicately rubbed with garlic, pepper, and coriander. Generously slathered with good old American Russian dressing. It tastes like a little piece of heaven. On the other hand, your stir-fry tastes like a montage of ISIS execution videos. So I'm sorry, but I'm leaving you for Renato. Scusi? I don't understand. You know what? Take a bite. What does that have to... Just take a bite. Barb takes a bite. I'm uh, I'm a happily married man. She immediately takes off her wedding ring, gets on one knee, and proposes to Renato. Will you marry me? Hiram gets on his knee. I asked you first. I will suck your dick. I'll swallow. Dio mio. Oh, what has I gotten into you two? Your pastrami. My pastrami? Wait, have you never tried your own pastrami? Uh, my doctor says my cholesterol is the too high. Don't be a pussy. Hiram concedes, takes a bite, and heads off stage. Where are you going? That's so good. I'm a suck of my own dick. And blackout. Hey, John Marco. Hello. All right, so tell me about this sketch. Tell me about Food Chain for Love. Where did this idea come from? Uh, so Food Chain for Love, I think, so I, I do stand-up too, and it, I think it was just like one of those ideas th- that like uh, someone will leave their marriage or leave their wife or family for like a sexual partner, uh, but food is also a need that we have. And so I, I think the idea was like, what would it be to leave someone because someone else made better food? Um, so that was just it. Just like the idea of, of food and sex are both needs, but you rarely see someone leave their family for someone else's good cooking. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think two of the my sketch team members, Chris Caffaro and Jessica Fry, both did good old 
kind of Brooklyn-y people like uh, like uh, George Costanza's parents on Seinfeld. So that's how this this came about. So you didn't even write this like to star yourself. No, no, and I think sometimes, sometimes I have to. Uh, I think it's like I've, I'm always nervous that I won't be able to do a character. So sometimes I write the weird, wacky characters for other people, and then uh, I'm trying to be better about being like, oh no, I could do this role. <laughs> um, but I think that's my immediate impulse with characters. I'm always nervous about like voices, or, or that's just not my forte. So I'm the Italian guy at the end. I, I gave myself that at least. Okay, so you're you're Ronaldo, Ronaldo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you mentioned doing stand up. Uh, I'm guessing stand up comes first, right? Like time wise of what you're doing. Uh, no, I mean stand up. I'd always like done stand up very passively. Uh, but it wasn't until like two and a half years ago I kind of decided, oh, this is going to be my my number one thing. So I really uncle function. I'd done stand up, you know, ten times randomly. Okay. Um, and uh, I was just, I thought of myself more as like a comedic actor. Okay. Uh, so then um, let's start at the beginning then. What were you into growing up? What made you laugh? Um, if I go way back, I remember the Wayside School books were very popular. I don't know. What are those? I don't, I don't I've never heard of that. It was kind of, well, how old are you? 33. Oh, okay. I'm 30. I mean, they were like, uh, it was just like this very absurdist book about this school that was wacky and weird i mean like absurdist like twilight level absurdity but it was all comedic i don't know i just remember it as like second grade third grade being very funny um but that and seinfeld my dad watched seinfeld i watched seinfeld when i was very very young before i could understand i'm sure a great deal of it and that was kind of I was never a sports kid, so that was kind of our like father son bonding was to watch Seinfeld. I think on Thursday nights. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I grew up with all the all the Nickelodeon stuff, the SpongeBob and the the Rocco's Modern Life and the Doug and Hey Arnold, which I'm sure shaped a great deal of my comedic sensibilities. I just don't fully remember. Um, but Rocco's Modern Life was definitely one of those. Did you ever watch that one? No, because I didn't have cable. So okay, yeah, I missed out on all that like era of Nickelodeon stuff. Yeah, Rocco's is very dark, and it's about depression. And uh, yeah, I've heard that it's not like it was very groundbreaking for. Oh yeah, Little, um, you see some of it, and you're like, I don't know if that's good to show children. <laughs> uh, like weird sexual innuendos, and uh, so that. But I'd say Seinfeld was like. The baseline, and then my when I was super into comedy, it was like Dane Cook was probably the. Or my mom bought me a George Carlin album when I was pretty young. Really? Um, yeah. It, they my parents were always very liberal in terms of of content I, okay. I had. So yeah, she got me a George Carlin album called um, Complaints and Grievances, which is pretty intense. It was a later Carlin album, so he's just like. Here's here's a group. Uh, I, I was gonna say this sounds like late angry Carlin. Yeah, like here's a group of people that should be strapped up to an electric chair and <laughs> shot in the mouth. And I was like, wow, holy shit. Um, so and then I think I just went along. At least where I went to school, Dane Cook was huge, and Chappelle's show was gigantic. 
Um, yeah. Those first two seasons of Chappelle's show were like, that's what you came into school. When, when he did that Lil John episode, I mean, you went into school and everyone was Everyone like, was there. Okay. Everyone. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely in that era for sure. Like Dane Cook was was pretty massive. Like he was, if I remember correctly, he was one of the first people that used like social media because like I remember he was big with MySpace. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that he he definitely used the internet to his benefit for sure in that early era and like got huge and everywhere. Yeah. And now you don't hear anything about him. Well, now he's making a comeback, Dane. I, I I know he's been doing stuff, but like I. There's, Tour, there's touring wise like, i mean i don't think i've oh yeah, really yeah, seen yeah. him leaving la recently yeah there's something he just had a big hollywood report article where he's like trying to turn it all around um but uh yeah didn't his brother steal like a lot of his money or something yeah his brother's in jail or i think his brother may have gotten out of jail but they're not speaking anymore he has brother embezzled millions of dollars i mean he went it's through crazy. a crazy yeah yeah and uh you know, people. A lot of people have their own thoughts on Dane Cook, but all I know is back then he was hilarious. He was big and he moved a lot. And there's no denying, even if you move past some of these comedy people in your taste necessarily, they they influence who I am in the DNA of like how I uh, emote and be funny. Yeah, I I definitely fell out of the Dane Cook sphere for a while, but that first like Comedy Central half hour. Yeah, is so fun. Like, it's and it's a different energy than a lot of people have been doing at that point. Like, sure. Um, yeah. Like, I just remember him like actually like just talking into the camera, just like flirting with the camera, and I thought that was like, okay, that's that's interesting that you're stopping your whole set to do this. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was cool. I mean, it's it's all it was all groundbreaking and felt exciting. And... So yeah, before before he gets himself to be the cliche that he becomes, and like. Sure, sure. And you look back, I mean, it just depends. You, when you become, when you become, I, I see how, like, someone who's a traditional joke writer, and this, this happens today, too, where, like, there's some people who it's more about their energy and the way they make you feel, and there's others that they're joke writers. And when you're a joke writer and slaving away, you look at some guy just being goofy on stage, and it's like, well, fuck him. He didn't do anything. But... Yeah. People laughing are people laughing. Yeah, it's that weird debate that like of what is actually stand up, like yeah. stand up versus like one man shows versus you know any like the people that are like gonna go down to like the purity of it. Like, all right, calm down. It's like it's comedy. Like, I mean, I think I think what people feel is it's it's first of all it's like it's a scary livelihood, and so I think people are get nervous of ways that the scene is changing that like if you're a road comic uh you you can easily feel like people don't respect your craft or you're not going to get booked when you're back in the city um I, i i work at i work at a club in Times square and like there's brooklyn comics who might see some of the comics there and go like oh they're just they're just doing crowd work or they're just this that yeah. or the other, but they're murdering they're murdering and it's it's like you just have to appreciate all the different facets of of such a loose profession and uh admire what you can admire and you know it, it depends i mean there's of course there's certain things i see larry the cable guy like most comics and want to go like what is this bullshit 
but like <laughs> there is a musicality he has and there's a skill he has and i listen to the blue collar comedy tour and even though he's like he's it's it's some of it's a, a little too racist and but his some of his jokes they're like well they're they're solid jokes the yeah. structure and the mathematics are there yeah there's i, I don't know because i like david cross like coming out against larry the cable guy a couple years ago i was like all right you're he's not for you like sure but i think what he's not trying to go to you at all but i think what david cross at least in that letter is there was this idea where he was talking about like don't make fun of my fans where it was kind of the pretentiousness of like a comedian pretending to be offended yeah and i think i certainly especially when you're in comedy for so long the idea that any of us would be offended the, the, you you could disagree with something or think that something shouldn't be said, but the idea of us being like offended or offended for the sake of our fans just feels like bullshit. <laughs> um, so you know that's what David Cross does. He he makes he makes fun of people. And uh, yeah, I just remember like David Cross like making fun of the fact that Larry the Cable Guy is a stage name. I'm just like that's that's the least of my worries about this at this point. Like sure. it's it's just like. When you listen to Larry, some of it is is horribly offensive. I think he uses the term. I don't know what he does now, but at least then he was using the term towel heads and just making like lazy gay jokes. Yeah, where you know it's it's and, and I'm all for comedians having the free speech, especially with vocabulary. But like, it's just propagating lazy ideas to large crowds, and you're gonna get criticism. And you should. You're making money. So, you know, you have to prepare yourself for criticism. Yeah, I yeah, I have no issue with, uh, you know, Dan Whitney becoming Larry the Cable Guy to be the character on stage. I, I have problems with some of the content of his material, for sure. sure. Uh, like, uh, all right, so you mentioned also considering yourself a comedic actor. Where does that start? Well, so I, I really was an actor first, and I kind of grew up uh, in middle school, high school, thinking that's what I'm going to do. Mm. So I was really into musical theater. I went to college, uh, University of Miami, for uh, musical theater, and uh, like like many many to be comedians, I, I I thought I could do comedy, but I I thought I could also do big big drama, and um, I I just in in college it was always a mix. I never thought of myself as a comedian, uh, or I ne- I never really did stand up. I did a class one summer senior year here in new york i did like a caroline's on broadway class and it definitely felt like good but it felt like uh very secondary to my acting pursuits um and then i was in an acting company after college in philadelphia a meisner based acting company and again i was where's uh, since you're talking about philadelphia and i'm philadelphia based uh, let's stop there for a little bit where 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 was this company Uh, it was uh I, i always horrible with directions this or or what was it called like oh it was called the ward acting studio it was very short-lived um it was it was it was it ended disastrously uh but it was like all these australians came up because this teacher went to australia so it's like a bunch of them there uh me and a a woman i was i was dating from college who was a tremendous actor and we kind of just were in this acting company with this acting teacher who was a great teacher, um, but the no one came to the shows. 
which was very depressing. And it was held in a church. We basically were in like a church. We'd move all the, the, the pews to create a little intimate theater space. And then sometimes no one would come and we'd be in wardrobe. And after 10 minutes, we'd have to call it. Um, and it was uh. like, I, but at the time, like, I, I was just like, I'm an actor. I'm gonna, I, I watched Daniel Day-Lewis every, every day. Um, I even like tried to do his character from my left foot. I had uh, my girlfriend push me around in a wheelchair and pretended. Um, so that's, that's who I was. <laughs> so you went like full method and like, yeah, we did like, we did like, and one of the big exercises you did was an autobiography. And, um, I picked Chris, Christy Brown, who's the guy my left foot is based on. Um, and I stayed in character like six hours a day. It was horrible. I mean, we got a wheelchair off Craigslist that was way too small for me. <laughs> And like I would try to, you know, using only my left foot and trying to recreate the uh, the the physicality of someone with cerebral palsy, like be in the apartment and try to eat and shower, and um, and then kind of the next big step was taking it in public. And so we went in public, and my my girlfriend pushed me around in a wheelchair, and we went out to dinner. And it's it's nothing will make you act better. I, you know, obviously it's problematic in a lot of ways, and I don't think Daniel Day-Lewis would get away with doing that role in this day and age. I think that movie came out in 89. But uh, nothing makes you commit to a character more than than being in public and possibly, in this case, offending every human being on Earth if you're found out. Um <laughs> Yeah, there's a part of me that's like, as you're telling the story, I'm just like, oh, this this all sounds horrible. Yeah, yeah. The potential of it's so bad. Sure, sure. <laughs> but I I guarantee you it's probably the best acting I've ever done in my entire life. <laughs> because, like, you know, there's no way I'm going to reveal to anyone that I would ever fake this kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, that's the kind of actor I was, and I all I wanted to do was was cry on stage. That was the big kind of goal. And uh, how, how do you get to that point from being like a musical person? Well, I think I went to college for uh, musical theater, but we we basically did the same curriculum as the acting people. Okay. And uh, I I thought I would be this kind of incredible singer i I mean i i I say that isn't like i practice three hours a day and it just it it plateaued and i think it took like four years of plateauing before i was like this is not the life i want to have i have i have like mild ocd to begin with and like that wraps up and being scared you're going to lose your voice as it is and it becomes just this horrible neurotic fear about losing your voice every night and uh, I just plateaued. And I was like, I'm never going to be the singer I want to be. Um, and so I moved to acting and made acting more the focus. And, um, and then I came to New York. And the, the industry, the, the horrible show business, it, it dictates to a certain extent what you're going to do. Because what you're good at is going to be the thing you're going to get booked for. And... Um, you, ultimately, a lot of performance life is like accepting what it is you're excellent at and acknowledging the things you're not. 
because you're not going to beat the best in the world at the things you're not naturally talented at. Um, from your musical days, do you have a favorite role that you did? Um, yeah, in high school, and this is before like I was taking voice lessons, and maybe it was because I was uh, just going through puberty that I could still sing these tenor roles, but it was doing Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors uh, is like the highlight of, of everything. That and uh, one of my musical theater summer camps, we did a little bit from a chorus line. And I, I, I take dance for a hobby, but I'm certainly in no way, shape or form a good dancer. But back in high school, this was like before I knew that. This was that, that, that wonderful <laughs> period of life where you truly think like I could be anything. Um, and there was this big 12 minute dance number um, that we did for one of the like recitals for the summer camp. And like, I had so much fun. So nice. yeah, and part of with stand up is what I what I like about stand up now and with sketch comedy is like I get to be physical, even though I'm never going to be graceful or talented physically. I I can emote physically and I can get that I can uh, get that energy out of me in a way where it's funny and it's okay that I'm not a good dancer. I can I'm certainly a funny dancer. <laughs> and you know, going through musical comedy and. It's just more tools in your belt for various other, like, when you realize that these things aren't, like, completely separate in their own specific categories, and these things can overlap and play with each other. Yeah. Like, it's only helpful at that point. Sure. I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's always been hard as, when I, when I really stopped singing, that felt very significant. Uh, And then when I really started to be like oh i'm gonna do stand up and that's number one it felt like a a scary shift um especially with stand up because it's like your schedule changes and you're like okay i'm gonna give up my nights um and and alter the daily ins and outs of my day and i'm glad that i did it but like those transitions artistically of of what you're focusing on are, are scary because you become rusty at, at the things you're no longer doing. Um, I can still sing a song, but it's not great. It's out of shape. Um, I, and I still act, but like, I remember the days where that's all I did every day and I felt, you know, ready to go. And now it's like, there's, it's just a little more awkward or a little bit scarier. Mm. Um, and, but you got to accept those. I wish I had been doing stand up, you know, much, much earlier than I had. And I think it's it's just hard to face the music or accept what it is that you're natural at. So how do you come to Uncle Function? So it's like a very crazy route. I was doing uh, this off-Broadway. You, you could call it a play if you had a gun to your head. Uh, <laughs> and it's called That Bachelorette Show. And uh, basically there was this... There was this thing called awesome 80s prom that was very successful it basically kind of got the 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 main tropes of 80s movies so like there was the the jerky guy from breakfast club just kind of the bully who was a badass but maybe had a heart of gold under there and then the 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 prom queen and the jock and unfortunately there's there's some 
uh, foreign exchange Asian student in some 80s movie that in retrospect is horribly offensive. Yeah, the, uh, the, the long duck dong yeah. in 16 t- Candles yep. is definitely an issue now. So he was one of the characters and uh, it was a very like interactive piece where people came and they had fun and it was like, I think it was set up as prom and it was interactive where you just kind of fucked with the audience and then you did little scenes here and there. So this was kind of an attempt to recreate that but with the, the Bachelorette. And... Um, so again, each guy was a, a broad stereotype of a character, and mine was named Giovanni Giovanni, uh, both those names. And um, mm-hmm. he was a Jersey Shore type, slick back hair, full jumpsuit, SpongeBob SquarePants underwear for God knows why. And uh, the way Wait, that... you actually had that detail? Yeah, yeah, that was that was part of my wardrobe was to put on those those underwear every night. Was it ever like part of the show? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure I went to some audience members. And I was like, do you want to see what lives in a pineapple under the sea or something? Okay. Um, and the way it was developed was kind of, and I didn't even get cast in it originally. Uh, I didn't even get a callback, but some, some guy who played my character dropped out and I submitted a video audition last minute. And, the way it developed it is like we would do these improv exercises in character. Um, and then after meeting for 10 weeks in a row, he went away and wrote a script uh, that didn't have anything to do with anything we had worked on. And uh, we just did this show every Saturday night at like a big club venue where there was a dance number and there was a couple scenes, but it was mostly me just going around being like, hey, uh, you ever grow up on a chicken coop? Because you shouldn't know how to raise cocks. Ah." (laughs) And things like that. (laughs) And out of that, there there was one member of the cast who wanted to make a sketch team. And I don't know how he chose me to be on the team. I didn't think this guy liked me particularly. I felt I was very untalented uh compared to some of the people on the cast and three of us from that show uh chris who was not in that show he was an awesome 80s prom and then a, a woman named jessica fry who who the guy who put it together just knew from from theater stuff and we all had like a theater background as opposed to a comedy background we weren't kids who had gone through ucb um or the pit but we just came together and um had a director named Alden Ford who was a real comedy guy who uh, who kind of just guided us through pitching sketches, putting sketches together, and we just did a show, and it was like a huge leap. And it feels like we kind of, through rehearsals, taught each other how to write sketches. And you know, now Chris is at UCB, Russell's at UCB, um, and I've done UCB stuff. Uh, so we have more of like the traditional comedic school of thought running through our veins. Um, but we really just kind of came from a theater background and we knew a lot about scripts, um, and script analysis and playwriting classes and whatnot. And just through trial and error figured out how to be a sketch team. Yeah. It's interesting. And I don't think I I thought about that with your, your idea of knowing, you know, knowing how scripts work and knowing, uh, you know, analysis and all that stuff. But 
the idea of jumping from being like, you know, theater kid who grew up with musical theater and everything to going to sketch comedy. Like, I don't think I've ever, you know, thought about going that way. Like, yeah. and creating, like creating your own material is so different than for sure, for sure being, you know, just, you know, being Seymour in little shop. Yeah. And I, I mean, like I had, again, I had like dabbled in stand up, and I'd certainly dabbled in playwriting. And when I say dabble, like basically like I never took it out into the public, but like I took the class and I wrote a horrible play. Um, so it, it definitely was a, a new experience and writing sketches is different than writing plays. And we found that out the hard way. <laughs> um, and like, you know, even if you look at the sketch that we read, like I was looking over it today and there's, there's occasional moments where I go like, yeah, that is, that's my comedic voice. I still see that. Or I still think like five beats in that thing are funny jokes. Um, and there's other parts you're like, Oh my God, this is uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what made a sketch funny or how to keep the momentum going. Or like, I didn't know the difference between a joke and just shock value. Yeah. Um, and I wrote, I wrote a sketch we didn't do, thank God, and hopefully never sees the light of day, but it was like, oh, this is brutal. It was like a casting session for an ISIS video. I don't know. Again, it's like you're just like when you first start comedy, you're like, I'm gonna, what's fucked up? Um, and you're around comedy so much that like the only thing that tickles you is something that's fucking dark. Yeah, and, it's and- the whole idea of the aristocrats joke. Like, yeah. Um, or like I, I was talking to somebody recently and – she took a sketch comedy class, a sketch comedy writing class, and one of the weeks was writing a, a, a sketch that was taboo. Well, that's how, like, did you read that guy who wrote at Seinfeld set the day after 9-11? He, no. He was, he was actually a coach for someone doing that exercise, and he used that as an example and then was like, oh, this is a great idea. And he wrote this. It's an amazing it's it's an amazing script and it went viral you know which was crazy the, the idea of like a full script going viral but it was like a fully structured felt authentic seinfeld episode of just those four characters in the day after 9-11 and uh it's amazing but that's i think comedians gravitate towards that a lot and that's why that's the stuff we get in trouble for it's because when we're around each other we will say very fucked up things because that's it takes a lot to really tickle us or make us feel the feeling a normal person would feel off a regular joke of like oh that's a little naughty yeah and i think part of it's also learning to discover for yourself where the line is um like like for example like reading your sketch today like there are certain parts of it that i don't think would fly very well Say it. Tell me which which part. Well, like uh, of ISIS. Video. No, no. Well, uh, no. But like you mentioned, um, I forget what the exact line is, and I've already closed the window. But you mentioned rape, like oh like yeah, yeah, being yeah. raped, like it tastes like it tastes like a yeah a, a combination of neglect and rape. And I and I feel like you know I can totally see where you're coming from with that line, but well, I'll tell you, we so we did we did a sketch last night. We had a show last night where we where. Uh, it's called Freudian freestyle and uh, it's like, it's just people hanging out and they're doing like a freestyle game. Mm. And the, the joke is that I'm married or I'm being, 
mar- married with someone and all her raps they end up like saying stuff about our marriage so first she talks about hating our honeymoon and then she talks about taking plan b at the Dwayne reed um and i'm like honey what and she's like no no it's it's i don't know what's happening it's just coming out so the idea is she just keeps saying um revealing how she really feels about me whenever she raps and the last beat of it is uh the so each time she raps she has two words and again this is this isn't going to be funny because i'm explaining it like this but i promise (laughs) it worked last night where you know i'm very upset that she said all these things and she's like "Uh, let me go one more time it's fine just give me two new words and her words are um oh uh, uh heart and ape and so the guy starts beatboxing, and she goes, okay, okay. I love my man, Marco. He's hairy like an ape. Even though I give consent, it feels like rape. And that we the sketch built up to the point where the idea that someone would say, reveal a feeling so horrible that they had about their husband there in the room, it works. Mm. But it's a delicate thing. Yeah, you have to learn the delicate, like the uh, the delicate balance of context and like setting something up correctly. And yeah, and again, it's like it's it's the context of that is like it's not like it's making fun of rape. It's not it's not making fun of people who've been raped. Of course, it's the idea is like what's the worst thing someone could say about having sex with someone is even though I give consent, it feels like rape. That's the it's a hard it's the worst thing someone could say. And if I'm doing a sketch where I'm saying these raps are like revealing the darkest things about this this marriage, that's the joke of it. And anything anything less feel like that's what's funny. And I'll tell you the first time we read it together, you know, it it popped in the group. We just laughed a lot mm-hmm. because it's so so surprising um and again it's not like the character she's talking about is like some creepy guy it's just like a little nerdy guy who's like oh my god what is she saying and um it's you have to find that out as you go along i with stand-up you find it out too where you will you'll talk about race you'll talk about sex you'll talk about certainly the me too movement it's like you people have thoughts on these things and you're going to talk about them in a comedic light it's tricky and some people will never find a certain area funny um right no and and i think there's this weird sense that uh funny has to be funny for everybody yes yes or that if you're offended that it shouldn't occur yeah um and it's it's everyone's it's it's almost like it's played out every comedian's complaining about it and it's kind of like i think i think michael che talked about we're like yeah you're gonna say offensive things and you're gonna get in trouble that's part of the class clown nature and i think like that's part of the game and you you mentioned uh learning like as you went uh how were the like what were some of the pitfalls that you got that y'all fell into that first year of learning sketch comedy um to just on the fly like that well i think like 
like if you go through like a UCB program, they they really beat in the idea of you find a game, you you within the first page, you know, there's all these like rules that you're supposed to break down the line, but it's like the first page something weird happens and then you find a game is produced by that and you hit that game at least three more beats and you end with with a button. And without that, we we had some we had some sprawling sketches that were eight, nine pages, which which is fine, but if you don't have a full game, they're just like scenes. They're not really sketches with a clear game. Um, it's more just when it's that loose, you run the risk of of rambling and not quite having a, a comedic moment or uh, not packing it with jokes. Um, the same pitfalls you could have with stand-up where like you're telling a story and the story's kind of funny, but there's no jokes. There's no punchlines. That's the same thing we would fall into. Uh, but I would say like one of the, the ways that we, we were still entertaining is, so as a, as a, as a stand-up comedian, at least in the beginning, you'd go to open mics and see what, what made people laugh. We never did like there's a couple sketch open mics of sorts where you kind of mm-hmm. put up new things but there's there's not a lot of them and i think we we also had our own careers so we weren't necessarily like going to shows every night together so our version of an open mic is reading the sketches out loud to each other and being honest with each other about what's funny what's not funny giving notes and I think one of the things we do, and I haven't really been on another sketch team, so I don't know how they all operate, but I think we do a good job of of being honest with each other, of giving notes, of being uh, very receptive is, if something is funny. Um, so each rehearsal is kind of our own open mic for each other. And uh, what's miraculous, and this, this is just kind of lucky, and it, it wasn't always this way, was that we're able to give each other feedback and still love each other and uh, without the oversight of a director, which we've done once in a while, but other than the first show, which might have been helpful, I think, for the very beginning, but after that, it was just us. And there's all sorts of of egos and uh, ways to be offended that you're not put in anyone's sketches or uh, no one likes your sketches or no one likes your pitches or someone gives you notes that you disagree with. Um, but we were able to find some kind of system that worked and that's how it was that none of our shows like sucked, sucked from the beginning. Um, we've gotten better of course, but I think we just always made sure something was at least moderately funny to us before we put it up. And there were of course still Pratt, uh, 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 mistakes you could fall into were like there are a couple sketches that we found fucking hilarious that bombed and it's few and far between but they're they're certainly shocking when all of us were like this is hilarious and it's because we have some kind of context for it that the audience doesn't have so there's like that, that's thing. huge. Yeah. The, the fact that you say that, the fact that you guys learned that, that that's huge. Cause that's always an issue that I have is that like, I know I'm seeing things a certain way and that's going to tinge my writing. 
how do I make sure the audience at least has a baseline yeah. of that? And like, there's obvious, like we did one last night about uh, a stand-in. Um, you know what a stand-in is like on a movie set or something? Yeah. Yeah. So most people in the business kind of know it, but I think we forgot that like, the average person might not know what a stand-in is. And I feel this is a, a clear-cut example where like there there was a literal job function that I don't think the whole audience knew about. But we were blind to it because together we all were like, yeah, a stand-in. Um, but like there's there's we did one sketch where he 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 met some family, I don't know if it was a girlfriend's family back in the day, where like the guy would be like, Hey, uh, my name's John. Ah, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking with you. My name's David. And like, he just kept lying and then was like, ah, it's a joke. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we found this story hilarious. And he wrote a sketch about a whole family that just goes like, yeah, I, 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 that's when my wife died in the car accident. Ah, I'm just kidding. That was all bullshit. <laughs> you should have seen the look on your face. And we just like, it was so silly. This guy just saying he's lying that, we were dying. I mean, we were dying and we put it on its feet. And this is what's great about sketch is you can't just pivot all of a sudden. Like in stand-up, you could be like, I'm abandoning this bit. It's dying. But in sketch, we did that first joke where he goes, ah, I'm just kidding. My name's David. And there was no laughter. And it's like, uh Oh, they don't like the whole game. <laughs> and we have 10 more beats or Russell, uh, there's no there's no easy way to say it. Russell's, Russell weighs more than I do. And he had a sketch where where we were all, except for him, we were all in a group like called Fat Shamers Anonymous where, and he wrote it, where we all like, we struggled um, of not making fun of overweight people. And then he runs in and he's like, is this, is this uh, Disney Holics Anonymous? And we're like, no. And the moment he leaves, we all like, did you see that guy? And it's not a very funny sketch. We could tell the moment we started it that the audience did not find it funny at all (laughs) about a group that feels a desire to fat shame people. And yet we had this three-minute sketch where the moment he left, we all just were like, did you see that guy? And we had no choice but to commit to the bit and like the look of, of horror on the audience's face <laughs> and just these, these assholes on stage making fun of someone who was overweight. And there was this desire to yell out. He was the one who wrote it. He was the one who wrote it. Right. Yes, not me. I don't believe this. Right, you can't really stop a show and be like, ah, sorry, people. That that was his idea, though. So you know, don't you know, yeah. don't take it out on us. This was his thought. Like, so it happens, and like you look back on it though, and those are the the most fun moments we've had on stage, and that's the glory of sketch versus stand up, where it's like when you bomb, you bomb together, and <laughs> there. I mean, we we joke about those 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 horrible those horrible <laughs> sketches because we were together and it's just we we all felt the same thing, but we're not alone in that feeling. Especially with the idea of you coming from like a musical theater background, 
where any performance that you do is generally going to be a crowd pleasing, sure, well known, and then dipping your toes into a something like this where everything is new to everyone in the audience almost all the time. Yeah. Like, like just like, and you know, I mean, well, we'll go back to Seymour, like, and little shop, like a bunch of people in the audience might have never seen little, little shop before, but at the same time, other people have and know it by heart and everything. Whereas everything that you're doing with uncle function, you might have people that have seen multiple sketches multiple times. If you've repeated stuff. Yeah. And you have fans and stuff like that, but like, it's all new to everybody. So like, there's no grace period for a lot of it. For sure. I think we, we probably do more new sketches every time than we need to. Uh, but it does make every show very exciting. Mm. And I, I think we're just at a point where like, if we all think it's good enough, we rarely have a, a true like disaster. We have sketches that don't do great now and then, but it's never like a, whereas like with standup, because it's just me alone on my computer, <laughs> I'll try something new now and then. And I mean, it is a disaster. It is silence. It is a, what is the joke? Um, and we don't necessarily have those. And that's why we're able to kind of do so much new stuff for everything. Yeah. Uh, but we had one last night where uh, poor Jessica is like an Oscar speech. Or it's like she wins an Oscar and she comes out of the audience, but her dress is just huge and gets caught and she tumbles down the stairs. And like there was a little laugh at the beginning and then it's just her falling down these brutally hard metal stairs that really hurt her. <laughs> and it's just like, okay. We just won't do that one again. Um, and the reason that was the case is because it was a very physical sketch. So there was nothing for us to really test. There was no way for us to really know how it would play. Yeah. And that's why we, we couldn't have really known with that one if the beats would all play. Uh, so basically, and basically right now, you're like, your fo- is your focus basically uncle function and stand up like are you still acting yeah i i i mean i act where it happens um i did a i did a play uh off broadway that i wrote last summer and uh it was enjoyable i really it was really hard to not do as much stand up as i wanted to be doing um mm. i was lucky I, I work a lot at this club called lol and they have very late shows so i got to at least i got to work every night but uh other than my own work I've, Theater feels like it's kind of off the table just because I, I, I go crazy if I can't do some stand-up every night. Okay. Um, so I'll act where they have me, and it's one of these things where you hope acting stuff comes along. But with the stand-up and the sketch, at least I have autonomy, and I'm, I'm doing my own thing. And we'll see what happens with the acting. I'm sure it'll be there at some point to varying degrees. But right now, at least... I, I feel like in love with stand up and Uncle Function, they're my best friends and uh I'll I'll do anything to, you know, do shows with them. Very cool. Um I I asked this to everybody, um, 
just out of my own curiosity, uh, especially when we're talking sketch comedy, Saturday Night Live is the big one. Like, sure. uh, do you have a favorite Saturday Night Live cast member? Um, of all time, or yes. okay, of all time. I mean, Will Ferrell was so quintessential to my. If we're talking comedic voice, he's another one where it's just like. You know, Anchorman, I was just like the right age. That that was like mm-hmm. the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. Um, so I think I think it's Will Ferrell. I loved Chris Kattan. Um, I remember watching Night at the Roxbury. I watched it twice in a row. Uh, so I think I think those are my all all time favorites. I mean, you, you talked about Night at the Roxbury. Do you have a particular like Will Ferrell sketch that you? specifically lean back to or uh i'm just i'm just like googling his name just to, just to <laughs> my, my mind um everything he did cowbell i mean will ferrell was just like i i what i love about will ferrell is this idea of this male ego this like dumb man who like thinks i mean that's what anchorman was it really was this like distillation of of man who thinks he's great and is a fool. Yeah. Um, that just felt so, I think I love the, the one where he's uh, the barbecuing one where he's like, get off the, the shed. Or, yeah. And that's like his first episode. That's his first episode. Yeah. God, what a fucking um, like, like he, like he walked into the, the building with that sketch Yeah, and it's, it's so just insanely just simple and hilarious. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say, I'd say him for sure. And I'm sure it's a lot of this is just age. Like I'm sure if I was a little bit younger, like key and peel would have been the biggest things in my life. Yeah. I watched them and I'm like, they're fucking, they're geniuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just when you're at that, you know, probably going through puberty for whatever reason it's just like those figures like seem to speak truth to power in a way that you're first discovering and that's that that age that's why those are always like your favorites from that age. yeah uh what is it uh one of the longtime writers on saturday night live jim downey uh always says that you always look back at like the cat the, the saturday night Live cast of your like sophomore year of high school as being the best yeah, ever. That so so that, that totally lines up with Will Ferrell for you, for sure. Um, so yeah, he's, he's just a genius. And as we wrap up, um, you know, two of the questions I always close with is, uh, what's something that you've learned from sketch comedy that you would pass on to someone else? That's someone that's like new to the game, a new writer, a new performer to sketch comedy. What's the tip of the trade that you would, Man, it's so it's it's so hard. It's so hard because whenever I think about like advice, it's it's it all should be broken eventually. Um, I think if if trying to, I always try to think like, what would I have said to myself? You you just have to. You have to, every time you have a funny thought, you got to write it down or mark it in some way. And you just have to test all this stuff out and, 
the hardest thing I think with comedy is being honest with yourself about what's doing really well and what's not. And you have to kill your darlings. That's that's a phrase, right? Kill your darlings. You have yep. to do that again and again and again and again. And you think you figured it out and then you have to kill it again. And that's just the, the lesson you have to have yourself because the, the, the glory of having a sketch team uh, is, as I said, it's that idea that you get feedback from a group of people that you have to admire. If you're going to be on a sketch team for four fucking years, you have to you have to truly admire the brains of the people you're with. Um, because if you don't, then you're, you're not going to feel like you're working. So you got to find the people that you think are funny and you have to work with them and listen to them and watch them and study them to hone your own skill. Because the only two things you have are, are the people you admire and their opinions and their thoughts and then you have to develop inside yourself your own ruler of what's funny and what's not. And you have to constantly be recalibrating that based on what is working in the world around you. So I know that's, that's not a very, very clear-cut note uh, in the least, but it's just about being honest with what's funny and what's really funny and what's just fine or cute and constantly be willing to make changes it's all editing man it's all editing and people say that everyone has ideas but it's who's gonna put it out in the world record it listen back go back figure out the lines that are funny i'm sure if i went back and maybe i'll do it just to challenge myself i could make that pastrami sketch funny in a way that it would really play sure and uh it's just about editing and in the beginning it'll you'll have to do 20 drafts and then hopefully one day you'll only have to do eight drafts um but that's 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 what i think is the thing that people don't do enough is is constantly trying to make it better and then finally uh you you know coming from a musical theater background doing some meisner doing some method why is it comedy that has hooked you so hard like between you know you said it feels weird when you have a night where you don't do stand-up you know you've been with the sketch group for about four years now i think some of it's some of it's an emotional feedback loop where i i i need a reaffirmation that's just like whether it's from my parents divorce whether it's in my dna i like i need that feedback and stand-up i get to do the thing that I'm good at and I get the feedback of laughter. And so it, I, I, I just get to feel fulfilled every night mm-hmm. and I need, I am itching without that. Um, so I, I, I think a part of this is just, I think it's what I'm, I'm good at. And uh, part of it is, this is where I want to be emotionally like to, I wouldn't necessarily want to do a long day's journey into the night and go to those places every night. And you'll meet some dramatic actors that are totally chill people. And you'll see others that like, they really enjoy going to that fucked up place. Um, And there was a time where I felt that more, but like right now in my life, 
I I feel silly and I want to be goofy and I want to I have a lot of anxiety and stand up I get to express that anxiety I get to I don't have to like try to bury it or subdue it because I'm doing some scene where I'm not playing an anxious person in stand up I'm playing myself in sketch I might have characters but I it's still me I don't have to do a full transformation um, so I think that's just it you you kind of the older you get you you recognize emotionally what kind of performer you want to be every night what kind of performer do you want to be when you don't want to perform when you're tired and you want to go home and you're not getting making any money uh and it's this is the kind of thing that i still am willing to do and i have fun doing and maybe like a lot of comedians i'll hit my 50s or 60s and loved ones will die and I'll have gone through a divorce and I've lost custody of my children and I'll go, you know what? Emotionally, I'm in a place where I'm going to go on stage and go fuck you to someone and cry. Maybe. Or like Jim Carrey, I'll be like, now I want to paint. You know why? Yeah. You, you look at Jim Carrey and it's like, I would love to see him do stand up again, but clearly that's not what he wants to do emotionally. And it's, it's kind of insane to think that someone like him could be a stand up, a full true stand-up every night and then no longer want to do it again and it feels unfathomable to me right now but sure i i also felt the same way about acting in musical theater where it was unfathomable that i want to, wouldn't want to do that every day and then some years pass some life events happen and you might change and you just got to follow your heart because art's too difficult to muscle through what you don't want to do Oh, that's yeah. That's definitely for sure. All right. <clears throat> Thanks, John Marco. Thank you for having me. This was a delight. I hope I didn't ramble too much. Uh, here's an update after the fact. A few weeks after recording this, Dane Cook had a tour date in Philly, so you know he's still around. John Marco and the rest of Uncle Function continue their residency at the People's Improv Theater in New York City this Thursday, April 18th, at the Striker Stage, 123 East 24th Street. The show starts at 8 p.m., and tickets and more information can be found at thepit-nyc.com. Follow them on most of the social media spaces at Uncle Function. My first sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production. You can find out more information at phillysketchfest.com. Follow Philly Sketchfest on Instagram at phillysketchfest. The music on this episode is by the band Nono, which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. Like my first sketch on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening. Go see some comedy.